want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. Welcome back to my discussion with Tom Crew and talking all things his novel, The New Life, about historicizing John Addington Simmons and creating this fictive world with who he's going to talk more about in part two, Simmons's sexological relationship with Henry Havelock Ellis, Oscar Wilde enters the scene. And how about Simmons and Havelock Ellis's wives? Where did women fit into this picture? So just as a little refresher, here's about a two minute clip so you can all remember where we left off in part one. And again, if you didn't listen to part one, listen to that first, and then you can jump right back into part two. I hope you all enjoy my discussion with Tom Crew. He was so fun to talk to, and I can't wait to have him back on here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This affection, the affection between men, it's the virtues. And that's what the gymnasium was, which means nude. That's what um, the symposium is supposed to be celebrating. But again, it's all very upper echelon men. And I think it's glad, like it's important that you really look into that in your work because it's something to aspire to. And not everyone can reach the Fire Island destination because of cost, right? Like there's barriers in this mm -hmm. vision. Mm -hmm. um, there's the problematics of consent, right? It's it's not like the baggage doesn't follow. It's it's the ideal. That's why it's an ideal. It's out yeah. of reach, yeah. right? Well, Even for the ancient Greeks, it was out of reach. I mean, yeah. let's not kid ourselves. Well, um, I think what I think one of the things that maybe is different about, you know, the period I'm writing about is that in a way it was democratic because these were, you know, this is a river in a, it's not a river, it's called a river, but it's not really a river in the Serpentine near Hyde, in Hyde Park, but it's actually an artificial body of water. But it, you know, it was available to all. It's a public space and, you know, it's like the Hampstead bathing ponds in Hampstead in London still have a, a gay charge because they, it's actually the fact that they are accessible that um, also allows, in my novel, someone like John to kind of wander along and look like he's not looking, as though he's just sat in the park reading his book. So it's it's also it's also these places where you know, like swimming pools, lidos. You know, why do all these places have this kind of association? I think it's because they enable a kind of looking that might not be possible in in other places and it is a a kind of accessible looking that you can maybe disguise you maybe you're there just for a swim but maybe you're not you know um. do you know that when i'm not delivering an epic ivory tower boiler room episode to you all that I do actually go on to other podcasts and other interview shows. Well, one show that I really have to tell you all about is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. I know so many of you here love classic films. You love queer 
concepts and analyses. So let me just give you a few of the episodes that are on that old gay classic cinema. First, you have to listen to the first ever episode they did where I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. So yes, it's an epic Sound of Music episode. There's a Gone with the Wind episode, The Wizard of Oz, Cinderella, 101 Dalmatians, Sleeping Beauty, and most recently, I and Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia, we were invited onto the Alfred Hitchcock Vertigo episode. So make sure you follow That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Instagram and on TikTok. Christian Garcia, the host, I know that he would really love if you listen to his podcast, follow it on Apple and Spotify, make sure that you rate and review it, and I think I'll definitely be back on that old gay classic cinema, so I'll keep you all updated. But after you finish listening to this current Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode, get your ears on that old gay classic cinema. Enjoy, you all. Yeah, I still... There's an episode that is about to come out after this where I actually have my first philosopher join me, like declared philosopher with a PhD. And he all he writes about sports and philosophy. And we get to a, into a whole conversation about the etymology of gymnos and the nudity. And like I say, if I could write a book, like another book, I would call it Gymnos Means Nude because I think there's so much there to athletic culture right now that it's all present, that looking, that cruising. And it's not the cruising sexually, right? We always think of that, but there's, you know, like straight men. I love to shock my friends who are straight men. I know that though. It's like, they know what they're signing <laughs> up for. And I'll yeah. be like, they're like, wait, you know, with your gay friends, Andrew, like you'll compliment each other's butts or you'll like share, you know, steamy photos. Cause like, Sometimes I'll put a steamy, like thirsty photo, like hiding my butt, but like it's a peach or, you know, something clever. And they're like, I would never do that. Like, I think for straight men, they're still trying to learn about how they, you know, display their body. And like, mm -hmm. they're saying they're learning from me, not like I'm spearheading some kind of playgirl movement, but, you know, I think that it is interesting to see, um, like, they are really looking at each other in the gym, but in terms of when it comes to them displaying their body in public, it is a different connotation. Like mm -hmm. they're, it, it operates differently. And I'm sure it has to do with, you know, women being present and like the gendered politics, the aspects there. Um, but let's get into the women because I do think it's important, just like my policeman, um, Bethan really explores the woman's dilemma or what's happening in this vision of homoeroticism where women are excluded. I mean, even though, you know, well, I'd like you, you know, time to get into it because these men, your characters, they're married. Like there are women present. It's, you know, they're not a, they're not living out a life where they're just around men all the time. No. And they're not, they're not a couple either. I think a lot of the time when mm -hmm. I start to explain what my book is about, and I say it's about these two men writing this book and they're both married, people immediately assume that these two men are 
in a relationship or attracted to each other and then they're not um my henry character who is based on havelock ellis is is straight and he's but he's married to a to a lesbian so there's and each each of these marriages john and catherine henry and edith each of these marriages has a third person in the marriage so there are kind of two love triangles and john has a, a lover called frank and henry's wife edith has a lover called angelica so there is actually a lesbian relationship at the heart of the book as well and one of the things i the book does is explore the the differences between the, that 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 gay male relationship and the lesbian relationship because there was no law against lesbian sex or women being together in that way so it was not a legal issue but it was a, clearly a still a massive social issue but it was easier it was e i think it was re relatively easy actually for men but it was easier for women to to uh to kind of mask sexual intimacy as as a kind of friendship and so one of the things the book does is sort of compare and contrast the way those two relationships work out and how they are drawn together and how they are um split apart and also through that and through some of the other women characters in the book to sort of draw the parallels between um this these kind of early stirrings of feminism and this kind of early proto-gay rights movement that actually the overlap which we see in the 1970s and 80s when feminism and gay rights come together is actually present at the end of the 19th century that mm. there is a perception that there is a common cause here and certainly my i encourage my readers i i think to to notice the the parallels but also to see actually where these things draw apart and another big thing i wanted to explore on the kind of john side of the story is his relationship with his wife catherine especially to see that his desire to kind of break out of the closet almost in 1894-5 can only come at this very serious cost to his wife and his marriage, that it will involve inflicting deliberate knowing pain on another person and humiliation. And he does that knowingly. It doesn't mean he's blithe about it. He feels a lot of guilt, but it, I always wanted readers not to just feel themselves drawn to this tortured gay man and, and to just clap as he embraces his sexuality and finds love, but to always see how his behavior damages and endangers others, not just his wife, but also his daughters. You know, there's a lot of turmoil brought with it and he does not always behave well in any way. He's not at all presented as a, as a classic hero. So that was very important to me because we would not appreciate what a homophobic, uh, structurally, institutionally homophobic society does to people if we didn't realise that it hurts women as much as men. And the real tragedy for John is that he knows that. He he is writing his book to try and save men from these marriages and to save women from these marriages. But in order to write his book, in order to put it into the public, he has to keep hurting his wife. She is, you know, she's horrified. It's just this terrible bind. And that's to me was the way to to really show how this society works, to, to never make it just about men, but to always to show in every way in which the female experience is, is paralleling, connecting, diverging. That that was crucial for me. 
Yeah. Do you still have like another 15 minutes, Tom? Is that okay? Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm very cautious. You know, everyone is busy, yeah. uh, especially as we head into the summer with weather and, you know. Um, but I'm so appreciative you've said all this because it actually reminds me of you might think, wait, how is Call Me By Your Name entering the scene right now? But to me, you've actually really helped me think through Call Me By Your Name because that was actually the novel that really gave me the inspiration to come out in 2008. That's when I came out at the age of 15. Yes. Um, and it actually is a very traditional novel, though. Like now that I think about it in terms of Again, ancient Greek pederastic type influence. Um, and But it ends in a minuscule tragedy, meaning our protagonist can't be with his lover. But mm -hmm. um, the main character, he marries. And what Whitman, actually, I'll give Whitman with all of, you know, like I've said, he does create this idyllic vision but at the same time, he didn't marry a woman like he didn't do what Simmons or Oscar Wilde married a woman, too. I mean, do it. Can we. Can we say that that's because of this Victorian aristocratic. That there were, as you say, gentlemen, like, is it because in America? Yes, that compulsion exists, of course, with social class, but maybe you know, Whitman didn't think he had to follow that pathway. Like he could be a bachelor, like he could traverse it differently than maybe Simmons and Wilde felt this pressure that if they didn't marry, they'd be bachelors. Like it would affect them in some social standing. Hi, I'm interrupting what I know is a riveting discussion because I have to talk to you all about one of our sponsors, Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher for all of your humanities-related book needs. Make sure first that you use an exclusive code they're only giving to us for Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. The code is Ivory Tower, and you get 20% off your broadviewpress.com order. So some of the books you can get, actually, we've had the writers on our very own Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Have you all heard our sound writing episode with doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez? So sound writing, they discuss first, what does that term mean? How do you use digital media projects in the college classroom? Also, how do we interpret and analyze podcast episodes like our very own ivory tower boiler room and we break down all of the different podcast genres and just how we're using media in our own lives and especially if you're teaching media and we even bring up artificial intelligence which i know is a hot button issue right now also make sure you listen to jeffrey dr jeffrey weinstock who talks about being a mad scientist of sorts as a composition scholar. And he talks about what it means to do pop culture research and teaching in the college classroom. Then in the fall, we had Dr. Ann Stevens on to break down what it means to be a literary theorist. And we even play a really fun literary criticism game where 
and uses all of these different theories to approach the Wizard of Oz film. So it's such an enjoyable episode. We love having the Broadview Press sponsor our podcast. And again, use that code Ivory Tower for 20% off all of your Broadview Press texts. I can't wait to feature a really exciting episode with Broadview Press about the philosophy of sport. So that Stay tuned, is coming up in our summer season. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Yeah, I think there's a big, I think there's a big class dimension. And as, as much as Wiles was in a way a bohemian, he, you know, he became more bohemian as time went on. And, and he was the, you know, the son of, of upper middle class parents and his father had been adopted to the queen. And, you know, so, and Simmons was also very well connected. His father was also, interestingly, Simmons and Wilde both had eminent doctors for fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps they were both even eye specialists, interestingly. I think that might be true. So I do think they um, they would have felt a different pressure from, from Whitman. And obviously, we're just living in a different society. But, I, you know, I, I think there's there's a conversation in my book between John and and Carpenter later on in the book where I think Carpenter says you know you 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 married you know you were you were braver than me and I you know I and I like the kind of perverse quality that actually it might have been braver to to risk marrying a woman that it might have taken more courage to 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 do that um and try and if you felt like there was something wrong with you you needed to fix to actually dare to go into a relationship and have children and try to do this other thing and that actually it could be seen Carpenter in that moment sees it as um, you know in a way maybe a, a weakness or a fundamental lack of courage that he instead didn't do that decided that he couldn't bear or risk or you know he would just sort of allow this this thing to take hold of him and that's one that's one way of putting at it. I mean, I do think it's a it was on on both those men's parts an assertion of will as well, and an attempt probably by both of them to to overcome something, to define themselves in a new way. So 
again, I it's just another example of how it's always I was always trying to see both sides to try and always say, well, what's what's the unobvious way of looking at this? What would be what what other kind of emotional impulses could be at work, and and how how could this choice be seen differently? Well, and it's not a secret that your work, and I agree completely. Like your book is now part of the Alan Hollinghurst, the uh, um, Andrew Hollerins, the um, Edmund Whites. Like I would even say for the Virginia Woolfs. Um, oh. <laughs> You're very but- special. Well, and something that I do find, though, what makes your work unique, and it speaks to our 2023 attitudes, of course, in my opinion, is I don't want to condemn Simmons, right? Like, we're not in the job of condemning any historical figure in the class. But I do feel there's a trap. Like, there's a trap in the language, the naming of the homosexual. Like, for me, the trap is, like, maybe what Whitman was fighting against, we won't know. And I'm not a the business of doing that um i can get into another time how an oscar wilde scholar did write to me who i am including in my dissertation just in case this person listens i you know have nothing against i was glad that they you know brought up a critique but like they even said i was making a lot out of the press of wilde by the american press and that it wasn't historical fact necessarily but a like scandalous account of when he says about the kiss of Whitman on his lips. And, you know, and I said, I'm in the business of looking into the archive of what was written, not necessarily what's fact or not. Kind of like what you're, you know, what you say in your novel. Like, because to me, what's more interesting is the gossip that spread because it exists. Like the gossip is written down. Even if Whitman didn't, I mean, even if Wilde didn't say it, it's very hard to prove that he didn't say it if it's written in the press but we know the press you know makes a mountain out of a molehill that's their business um mm. but it's still the tantalizing aspect to me is fascinating because you've even brought this up like whitman is being passed down like wild says he has the kit like might have said but the press says that he had the kiss on his lips or the queer men around wild actually spread this a mythos mm-hmm. of the kiss on the lips. But you've even said Edmund Carpenter said he slept in Whitman's bed. Like for some reason, Whitman is the touchstone. Like he literally is not a deity, but he's like anointing queer malehood, which I find fascinating itself. It's this genealogy that's built. There's and, a, there's a, yeah, oh, sorry. Go I was just going to say there's a, there's a um, wonderful story um which is told in column Tabin's review of Sheila Robotham's biography of Carpenter which I assume he probably took from the from the biography uh he wrote this review in the London Review of Books and there's an amazing story which connects Whitman someone Whitman slept with in the 1870s there's a kind of chain that goes up to the oh, 1970s yes. Yes, that yes, goes yes. because he went to bed with someone who slept with Kerouac. And so there's like this incredible. Oh, Edward re- Carpenter's The Circle, the circle book that Carpenter did, right? No, no it's, it's just oh. a kind of scandalous sex story that, that these people remember sleeping with Whitman and they turn out to have slept with each other. And it leads from this first person who slept oh, with yes. Whitman. It's like a, you know, sex daisy chain thing. And it's just a, this wonderful thing where actually 
you've got someone sleeping with Kerouac who slept with Whitman who's you know it's this it's one of these a very physical tangible sexual version of what you're talking about where Whitman in a way physically links people you know through successive generations you know to Kerouac or Burroughs or whoever it was it's um it's a very nice way of thinking about it yeah a nice sexual metaphor it's like a daisy Mm. chain exactly I mean porn would have fun time with that uh but uh anyone up for Whitman porn no (laughs) that would be an interesting I don't think they've gone into that or Oscar Wilde realm uh but it probably it probably exists somewhere I'm sure everything you think of they say exists um but no there is a book it's not by Edward Carpenter but I think there is a book called something circle I'm not remembering it right now but they tried to like do this lineage you're talking about um I think it was from the 1970s um but it is fascinating to me like you know as we end Tom I know we can't we're I'm almost asking you to be a soothsayer uh but like our oracle at Delphi here but it is I think it's a question right now in our culture which is, has the language of sexuality limited us? And I think it has, but it's also created identity formation, which is what names do, right? It's about identity. But it's also created now, you know, being part of a camp and a tribe and standing up for your rights, which is important. But have we also... Like we know sexuality doesn't define itself by a name. Like the erotic impulse isn't just about a specific gender all the time. Like I said, eroticism, like you put in your book, Simmons, he finds eroticism in his wet dreams or in like a cruising encounter that he might imagine on a train, like how it'll feel when he feels a bulge against his pants or like his own bulge against his fabric. It's, but he also does have some eroticism toward women. It's, it's the name he's coming up with as a homosexual doesn't even define himself in all aspects. Mm -hmm. So it's, is a conundrum, but like, is the conundrum worth the politics, I guess, is the thesis (laughs) of a dissertation. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that 
key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Um, it's a really interesting question because I think the language was so enabling. People wanted the, you know, Simmons wanted a language, wanted a a, a a phrase that would, that was sort of free from, you know, the old marks of prejudice. You know, invert, for example, seemed like a better word than sodomite because it didn't have legal and biblical connotations. And so I think it was those kinds of searches for the right word, a word to describe you, uh, or the thing you are was very important in a time of political struggle. What was essentially a political effort to try and change the law, which needed some kind of language, needed a new concept in order to say this thing shouldn't be illegal. Um, but 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 at the same time, it was only ever a shorthand, and I and I, you know it was a shorthand to try and pin down something that, as Simmons believed and as I believe, had existed through all of of human history. And when you think about it that way, you, it's hard to get hung up on the words. Um, 
And yes, you, you feel like the words, if the political battles have been won, to the extent that they have, you know, do the words, do we care about the words anymore? And, and it can come to seem as I think it sometimes feels at the moment that the words have become the thing, not that it's not actually the reality behind the words. It's the, mm. it's the words we spend our time worrying about and fretting about. And are we using the right ones? And are we using them in the right way? And, oh, maybe it's better to be called this rather than that. And Mm. that can be immensely uh, empowering for people and, and can open up great avenues for people. But it, it, I think it probably does show some kind of inadequacy in, in our ways of thinking and the way we, the way we've managed to get tied up with language because the language shouldn't be the important thing. It shouldn't be the language that does it for us. It's, um, you know, the real effort should be to strip the language away. And and maybe that's what some people think queer does. It is this, for example, is, is a is a wider, looser term that allows more range and expression. But but to me, it seems to have already calcified. It just seems to have replaced gay. In it, yeah. in it, you know, I, so and then so that doesn't seem like it is doing the thing it's meant to do. It seems to be, again, creating a, a distinction, a a category you know and we seem actually more fixated now on saying things forms of art are queer than than we did when when the word was gay and writers didn't want to be called a gay writer not because they weren't comfortable with being gay a lot of the time but because they felt they just wanted to be a writer and to me to me there's that thing again you know are you human or are you a queer human are you a writer or are you a queer writer you know where's the where's the place of possibility where's the Where's the place of freedom there? Is it with, you know, two names or or one? Is it with two categories or or one? So, I think it's a kind of insoluble issue. Probably, certainly, we won't be able to solve it on this podcast. No, but but, but it's and I'm it's sure. Very yeah, and I'm sure like this whole audience listening has so much. Like this might resonate with a lot of you out there. Um, like I mean, I've even gotten advice. Like I've had to work hard on like just saying I'm an unapologetic gay scholar, like literary scholar, because I've gotten advice that if I call myself a like that, I am an LGBTQ scholar that I'm going to uh, turn off certain audiences in this media sphere, which is true. I mean, like I understand that in terms of marketing, but I'm sure you've gotten all different advice for how to market the new life. I mean, I know what goes behind press campaigns, uh, but at the end of the day, I do know that I still think there's not enough visibility, in my opinion, of like LGBTQ media figures or artists like who do have a large following from an LGBTQ audience that... Mm. Um, yeah, the term is helpful to identify an audience and a yeah. demographic. Yeah, like uh, I do. Like in my own personal life, I don't come out to people. I just like I'll say, "Oh, that man is really attractive." Like, "Oh, he's sexy," mm. because my feeling is that's who my my authentic who I am. Like to mm. me, it's about who I desire. But even though like this is very pop culturey, I think it's important though. Like I will look at. Like I follow Playboy and they, they've started to put up male models. And let's just say some of the men who comment are not happy. And I think <laughs> that tells you about what they think Playboy is. They mm. think it's a lot of them still think it's about scantily clad, attractive 
you know, bombshell women. And well, that's, what I, that's her, what I thought it was about until you've just broken this news well, to me. I think they're trying to rebrand that it's about just attractive people, but um, the audience isn't right. If it, in my opinion, if the naming wasn't important, we wouldn't see comments like that. Um, like we would, it would just be, okay, we're appreciating all different erotic desire and bodies, but people still are in there, you know, they still want to be marketed certain bodies who they're attracted to. So, you know, but I think we're getting, I think the younger generation, I definitely am seeing, they are starting to exist outside of sexual language um, because, you know, I'll put it explicitly or frankly, I think they just are not giving a fuck in terms of, I like in terms of who they're attracted to. Like they are embracing and mm. you know and i think that has to do with the fights of lgbtq and feminist activism so we'll see yeah, we'll let's see, see. <laughs> but i we mean but i have hope i have hope that i mean there's definitely a lot of hope i think that like you said there's pros and cons in naming and also being outside of the naming and you know like you do, you do follow Whitman's example. Like Whitman has some of the most erotic language, I think even more so than Simmons, has some of the most erotic ways to name, you know, semen and a penis that doesn't exist because he calls himself a homosexual. It's in mm -hmm. his poetics. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's... Who knows? You know, who knows? But eroticism is part of all of these, like... Simmons's language, Whitman's language, and Tom's language. I mean, Tom's language is potent and virile. And, uh, <laughs> you know, let's just say um, it seems like you had a lot of fun writing your novel, Tom. Well, I mean, I wish I could say all oh, that was the case all the time. There was a lot of pain and suffering as well. Oh, but, yeah. um, certainly... but there are highs. There's some highs. Of course. I mean, the, the moments when you, you know, lots of people say this, but the moments when you look at the, the time and you realize you've been writing for an hour and you've, you've been, you've listened to three albums and you couldn't hear what the, you couldn't say what they were. And, um, and there, but there are also moments. Sometimes I write a sentence and I just think, you know what? I could, I could do write no more today. That could, I could, that could be 10 words. That could be all I write today. Yep. And it would feel worth it for that sentence. So sometimes you just, you you just know it's just like a, a click in a lock. It's just it's just right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and on that note, thank you for the new life, Tom. Please, everyone, get your hands on the new life. I've also listened to the audiobook, which is wonderful. Wonderfully okay. done. Who who is the um performer? Is the, the actor Freddie Fox. Okay, actor Freddie Fox. Wonderful job. And yeah, I maybe eventually we'll get an erotic memoir from Tom Cruise, but I have a feeling that's not. <laughs> I have a feeling you like to hide behind the fictive figures. Well, yes, um, I mean, it would be a very dull erotic memoir, I can tell you. Um, so it's not going to start off like Simmons on the train. Right? <laughs> no, <I'm afraid laughs> okay. Uh, well, Tom, thank you so much, and this was just such a pleasure to have you on here. Oh no, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, and everyone out there, you know. Reach out to Tom on Twitter. Like, yes. you know, if you've read the book, take picture, pictures, selfies, 
you know, I'm on Instagram. My podcast is I'll share things with Tom, you know, and yeah, excited to see how everyone weighs in on these, the naming debate and discussion, because I think there's a lot of opinions. Yes. Okay. Be bye, kind. Tom. And <laughs> okay. bye, everyone out there. <laughs> bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter. And TikTok, too. Remember our TikTok? That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video interviews are on our Patreon. All of our bonus episodes are on Patreon. And it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes. And also, it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So. Without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now. <laughs>